Happy October! Anyways, you get the point. Hi, I'm Jay and welcome to my podcast. On today's episode of the Six One Life, we're going to be going through LGBTQ history. Mainly because October is LGBTQ History Month. So it coordinates. Anyways, strap in, grab yourself some snacks, drinks and make yourself comfy. Because this is episode 4 of the Six One Life. So let's get into it. LGBT history dates back to the first recorded instances of same-sex love and sexuality of ancient civilizations, involving the history of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer peoples and cultures around the world. This definition being from Wikipedia, by the way. Now, I believe that, like, just with that definition, this defeats just about everything got to do with homophobia and transphobia. Because this shit has been around for ages. It's just that no one gives a fuck. Well, the ones not caring being the homophobic and the transphobic people. Who can go in the garbage? Yeah. Hole in one. Moving on. Now, just to show how far this shit has, like, gone on for, let me just give you a quick timeline. For example, in 9600 BC to 5000 BC, archaeologists found Mesolithic rock art in Sicily, depicting phallic male figures in pairs. They have been interpreted variously, including as hunters, acrobats, religious initiates, and depictions of male homosexual intercourse. And for stuff to be drawn in that time must have meant that it happened. So there we go. I mean, what can you say? Bada bing, bada boom, it happens. I'm sorry, that was a horrific New York accent. Another example of just how far this shit goes is in 9000 BC, when the Ein Sacri lovers is sculpted, the oldest known representation of two people engaging in sexual intercourse, the gender of both individuals and the sculpture being unknown. And also one more example, just because I love offending the Greeks and the Turks, there is um, sexual depictions in Neolithic and Bronze Age drawings, specifically in Neolithic Greece and Cyprus, figures often being dual-sexed or without identifying sexual characteristics. This basically means that there are trans people and non-binary people that are drawn having intercourse. Basically, this puts forward, like, the the main moral of this is that trans and non-binary people have been here for ages alongside same-sex relationships. How many times have we got to tell people? Now, after the whole drawings within, like, the Stone Age and the Neolithic and the Bronze Ages, this is where it turns into people. Or at least there's more records of people than there are drawings. For example, in... 2900 BC to 2500 BC, a burial of a suburb of Prague, Czech Republic, a male is buried in the outfit usually reserved for women. Archaeologists speculate that the burial corresponds to a transgender person or someone of a third sex. Another example of this being two Egyptian lovers. I don't, I can't say their names for like the life of me, so I'm just gonna get a recording. and There. The point being that in 1964, someone found their tomb and it's weird because their tomb, besides having both the lovers, also had their wives and their heirs with them. So archaeologists speculate that it could possibly be that they were brothers or cousins or some type of family member instead of being lovers. However, incest at this point wasn't seen as a bad thing and if anything was more of a competition 
So it makes sense as to why that could have possibly been a thing for them. But then again, this happened thousands of years back, so no one actually knows. Carrying on. Now, I find it weird specifically how this is in ancient Egypt, because if you look back at mythology and like the stories of the deities, there are a lot of LGBTQ stuff. For example, Horus and Set. The story being that Horus and Set hated each other and ended up having this rivalry that just lasted years until Set decided to cross-dress and dress up as femme instead of his usual mask and go to Horus and basically seduce him by saying that he had a nice ass and muscular thighs, which is a nice pickup line for gay people or any man-loving-man relationship. And that's not the only thing that happened within ancient Egypt. For example, historians believe that Pepi II Nefakare had a homosexual interpretation around nocturnal visits to his general. No wonder so many gay people love history. And like, even after ancient Egypt, there's so much gay stuff, even with English literature. For example, Sappho, the Greek lyric poet born in Lesbos in Greece and was known for her poems of lesbian themes. And I think that after the whole ancient times or the ancient civilizations kind of pass, this is where it starts to get a bit iffy because around this time is where the book of Leviticus starts being written, AKA the Bible. Now, a lot of homophobes do love to use this quote. It's just the thing. Now this quote a lot of homophobes like to use and it's just a trend and on top alongside me being a former GCSE student of religious studies this was a very debatable one within classes. This is what the quote states. The quote states that you shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination. That is chapter 18 verses 22 and another one from chapter 20 verses 13 states if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death, their blood is upon them. Now let me just give you some clarification. Last time I checked, this is from the book of Leviticus, which is a book of Christianity. Now I'm not trying to slander any friends of mine that are Christians or any Christian at all, but last time I checked, isn't Christianity a sub-religion of Judaism? Like the origins of Christianity were from Judaism. And last time I also checked, the Talmud, which is a part of Judaism, also states that there are six genders. So if one thing's saying one thing and the other one's saying another, isn't this just a whole game of Chinese whispers? Moving on. Now I'm going to go through the genders of the Talmud, or at least what the Talmud states. The first two we have is Zakar, which is male, Nikiva, which is female, Androgynous, a person who is both male and female sexual characteristics, Tumtum, a person whose sexual characteristics are indeterminate or obscured. Ailonids, a person who identified as female at birth, but develops male characteristics. And then Saris, a person who identified as male at birth, but develops female characteristics. Now, one thing about the Talmud, which I don't really like, is that Saris and Ailonids are both depicted as infertile. Which is annoying because that's our version of basically trans people. And this kind of brings on the whole ideology that trans women and trans men can't get pregnant or can't make anyone else pregnant. Which is just sad because they can, or if they wanted to. But after the whole Jesus time and after that, we then got the Romans, which is quite nice considering the fact that Emperor Nero married two men. 
So now we're starting to see more polygamy coming around. Now for those who don't know, polygamy is the act of having more than one partner, which wasn't exactly looked down upon alongside the royals and elite. And at that point, it wasn't uncommon to have many other people that you'd have sexual relations with, whether that be mistresses or masters, or anything in between or out of it. So for Nero to have married Pythagoras and Sporus isn't uncommon. And it's not just Nero. For example, in 98, Trajan, one of the most beloved of Roman emperors, begins his reign. Now, Trajan was well known for his homosexuality and fondness of young males, which proved good in his favour. It's also really hypocritical at the time because, at that point, Romans were criminalising sodomy. At least that's what they called homosexuality back then. And yet, their emperors were also fucking around with men. Which isn't a bad thing, it just seems a bit hypocritical. Moving on. But then we drift more into gender time, and now this is quite interesting. Now in 218 to 222, the Roman Emperor Elagabalus, his reign begins. At different times, Elagabalus married five women and married a, a man named Zoticus. And throughout his reign, the Emperor wears makeup and wigs, prefers to be called a lady and not a lord, and often vast sums to any physician who can provide him with a vagina. In conclusion, for this reason, the Emperor is seen by some writers as the earliest transgender figure and one of the first on record is seeking sex reassignment surgery, which is pretty cool. Another transgender figure or transgender saint would be Anastasia the Patrician. Now in 1576, Anastasia the Patrician, who left life as a lady-in-waiting in the court of Justinian I in Constantinople to spend 28 years until her death, dressed as a male monk in seclusion in Egypt, passed and she has been adopted by today's LGBT community as an example of a transgender saint. So basically our version of St. Patrick's Day. As the times go on, there seems to be more criminalization and persecution of homophobic people. Any act classed as sodomy being punishable. And in most cases, the punishes given are more physical than what they could be, which is kind of horrific. But then you also get a couple of people that pop in and out that kind of make it better. For example, in 1476, Florentine court records show that Leonardo da Vinci and three other young men were charged with sodomy twice and acquitted. Now, getting into the 1400s, the 1500s and the 1600s, I kind of find it hilarious. As of now, we're in the Renaissance period, which is known for being an innovation in the ways of academics, the arts, philosophy, ethics, etc, etc. So at this point, most people were expressing themselves through their education, especially the artists. Now, I kind of find it hypocritical in a sense because this is a time where people are expressing themselves more than ever and people are being encouraged to show their skills and to experiment in just about everything. But if, for example, a man decides, do you know what, I'm going to experiment with someone else who has the same genitals as me, then we get into loads of shit. Where in this case, whoever is doing this ends up getting persecuted, hanged, castrated or even burned. And yet that way of experimenting is wrong. And yet people at this time are still encouraging experimentation. Where's the fucking logic in that? Now I find it funny because most of the time the countries that end up having all of these rules and stuff were of a Catholic religion. This still being in around the 1500s. And it's kind of funny because most of the time the people that ended up getting charged for sodomy never actually, you know, got persecuted. They just assumed they were gay. And most of the time, even though they were, they never found out. Which is quite funny in my opinion. And it's not even just sodomy as well. For example, in 1533, Henry VIII passes the Buggery Act. Which basically means that anal intercourse and zoophilia is punishable by death throughout England. And I'm just like, 
You literally fucked men. And now you're trying to hide it. And it's not even just in England. And in 1543, do you know what Henry VIII does? He gets the buggery laws and extends it so it fits with Wales as well. Now, here's what I find really interesting. So, after Henry steps down from the throne and Mary I ascends the English throne, Mary decides to get rid of basically every law that had been passed by Henry during the 1530s. So, all the buggery acts are just gone. So, what does this mean? Now, Catherine of Aragon, as we knew it, was Catholic, so of course her kid was going to be Catholic too. And she would probably also think the sodomy is wrong. And yeah, she literally took off rules that stated that zoophilia and anal intercourse were not okay. Mm. This is definitely fruity. I can't be the only one who thinks it. Now, I know she married off to some other Spanish dude, but still, she may have been bi. Moving on. Now, another thing after this I find completely hilarious is that after Mary kind of gets her head chopped off, Elizabeth I comes in and reinstates Henry's old laws, including the Buggery Act. And yet, this woman never married. I know there's a lot of historians and writers that state that she did have a fling with some pirate dude, but still... You like jazz? Seems a little fruity to me. Now, after Elizabeth's reign, it normally goes through the same stuff again, with people being punished to death by their sodomy acts and all this and that, which kind of normally goes through the whole general thing. Until we get around the 1700s, because in 1785, Jeremy Bentham is one of the first people to argue the decriminalisation of sodomy in England, and then after 1785, it carries on. And like, after 1791, all these countries start like, decriminalising sodomy, and then now when we start getting into the 1800s, we start to see stuff that's better. For example, in 1807, one of the earlier known same-sex couples in American history, Vermont residents Charity Bryant and Sylvia Drake begin their relationship. And after 1807, countries still continue to decriminalize homosexual acts, including one very, very surprising one, the Ottoman Empire. Now this one's really weird because Islam as a religion is probably one of the most homophobic and transphobic ones I've ever seen personally. Now I find it funny because within the Ottoman Empire, it wasn't really bad to have like polyamorous relationships or to have masters or mistresses of any kind. And cross-dressing was a nice thing. And yet, even now, Islam says that it's wrong. Is religion missing something in general? Like, what happened? So why did I miss? You get the point. Then alongside more amendments to remove death sentences and decriminalizations, we get more people coming through. For example, on the 29th of August, 1867, Karl Heinrich Ulrichs became the first homosexual to speak out publicly in the defense of homosexuality. Robert Beachy said, I think it's reasonable to describe Ultris as a first gay person to publicly out himself. I've probably said his name wrong like twice, but yeah, there you go. There are some countries, however, who didn't decide to undecriminalize homosexuality, which is just plain out sad. One big example being the German Empire. Another example also being in 1886 when Portugal recriminalizes homosexual acts. But then a really nice thing in England, where in 1886, the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1885, outlawing sexual relations between men, but not women, is given royal assent by Queen Victoria. So is Queen Victoria for lesbianism? We will never know. Moving on. And throughout the end of the 18th century, it's really weird because you get loads of people stating that Homosexuality is illegal in their country, some are legal, some are criminalizing it again, some are decriminalizing it, and it's just weird. One example being in 1890, 
Well, homosexuality is illegal in Italy, but it's legalized in the Vatican. What's going on here? Now, it's also around this time in the late 18th century that openly LGBTQ people start being born, or at least like the first generation. So in 1892, popular openly bisexual poet Edna St. Vincent Millay is born on the 22nd of February. Alongside biologist and pioneer human sexuality Alfred Kinsley being born on 23rd of June 1894. Then we have the trial of Oscar Wilde in 1895, which resulted in his prosecution under the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1885 for, in quotes, gross indecency. It's also around this time where we have a lot of more literature being told around. P.S. If I said anything got to do with the 1800s and said 18th century, I meant 19th. But when it starts kicking in is when the 20th century comes around, alongside the 21st. Break time. This is your intermission block. I repeat, this is your intermission block. Pause here to grab yourself some more drinks or snacks, possibly make yourself even more comfy. Go quickly sort some stuff out or go take a loo. And hopefully I'll see you again in a second. To the people who did actually pause and took a loo, made themselves more comfy, did something else, took a break, or possibly added more drinks and snacks to their collection, hi. And to the people who didn't, hi again. In the second half of this episode, we're going to be going through LGBTQ history again, but more so into the 20th and 21st century. Let's get into it. Now, on the 8th of June, 1901, two women, Marcela Gracia Ibias and Elisa Sanchez Rodriga, attempted to get married in Acruna, which is now Galicia, Spain. To achieve it, though, Elisa or Elisa had to adopt a male identity of Mario Sanchez as listed on the marriage certificate. I think there's also a film of this called Marcella and Elisa on Netflix. It's a weird film, but it's cool. Then we have in 1906, potentially the first openly gay American novel with a happy ending, Imre, being published. Then in 1910, Emma Goldman first begins speaking publicly in favour of homosexual rights. Magnus Hirschfeld later wrote, She was first and only woman, indeed the first and only American, to take up the defence of homosexual love before the general public. Sadly, in 1913, however, the F word is first used in print in reference to gays in a vocabulary of criminal slang published in Portland, Oregon. The quote being, All the F will be dressed in drag at the ball tonight. Disgusting. In 1917, the October Revolution in Russia repeals the previous criminal code in its entirety. Bolshevik leaders reportedly saying that homosexual relationships and heterosexual relationships are treated exactly the same by the law. In 1919, in Berlin, Germany, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld co-funds the Institute of Sex Research, a pioneering private research institute and counselling office. Sadly, however, its library of thousands of books was destroyed by Nazis in May 1933. Another innovation within the same year is that different from others, one of the first explicitly gay films is released. Magnus Hirschfeld having a cameo in the film and partially funding its production. In short, Magnus Hirschfeld is our version of Catherine Plummer from Newsies. Uh, now, I've got a headline for you. Cheeky boy gets nothing for his troubles. You shook out Point noted. Moving on. Now, I find this really weird, but let's just get into it. In 1921, in England, an attempt to make lesbianism illegal for the first time in Britain's history fails. Now, reason why I think this hasn't happened or like the attempts to make lesbianism illegal in the UK failed is that most people sexualize it. And like most men like to watch it as if it's entertainment purposes. Which is kind of sad because it isn't. If anyone else also has any clue about why lesbianism wasn't illegalized and sodomy was, um, do tell. 
just for my general knowledge. On the controversy of that, however, in 1922, a new criminal code comes into force in the USSR, officially decriminalizing homosexual acts. And with all this great stuff happening, it kind of goes back down again, which has been a pattern throughout history. In 1923, a shortened version of the F word is first used in print in reference to gays in Nell Anderson's The Hobo. The quote being that fairies or Fs are men or boys who want to exploit sex for profit. See the homophobia? However, contrasting this sad news, in the same year, a lesbian Elsa Goodlow, born in England, published the first volume of openly lesbian love poetry in the United States, titled Honor Grey Fred. And in 1924, the first homosexual rights organization in America is founded by Henry Gerber in Chicago, the Society for Human Rights. The group exists for a few months before sadly being disbanded under police pressure. And in 1926, the New York Times is the first major publication to use the word homosexuality. For good terms or bad terms, however, we don't know. Now going into the 1930s, in 1931, a group of transvestites from Barcelona, known as Las Carolinas, carries out the first documented LGBT demonstration in history. They do so after the destruction of Centric Public Bath in Barcelona, which was a common LGBT meeting at the place at the time. In 1931, also, Marge Den in Uniform, one of the first explicitly lesbian films and the first pro-lesbian film, is released. And again in 1931, in Berlin, Dora Richer became the first known transgender woman to undergo vaginoplasty. In 1932, Poland covertized the homosexual and heterosexual age of consent equally as 15. Polish law never had criminalized homosexuality, although occupying powers had outlawed it in 1835. Then after 1933, shit starts happening again, with the National Socialist German Workers' Party banning the homosexual groups and the homosexuals being sent to concentration camps. This is also around the same time where Nazis burned the library of Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute of Sexual Research and destroyed the whole institute. And then again within the same year, homosexual acts are recriminalized again in the USSR. Along all the shit though happening in Europe, in 1936, Mona's 440 Club, the first lesbian bar in America, opened in San Fran in 1936, with Mona's waitresses and female performers wearing tuxedos and patrons dressing their roles. And then unfortunately, in 1937 comes the first use of the pink triangle for gay men in Nazi concentration camps. Then in 1938, the word gay is used for the first time on film in reference to homosexuality in the film Bringing Up Baby. In 1939, Francis V. Rummel, an educator and a teacher of French at Stevens College, published an autobiography under the title Diana, A Strange Autobiography. It was the first explicitly lesbian autobiography in which two women ended up happily together. This autobiography was published with a note stating, The publishers wish it expressly understood that this is a true story, the first of its kind ever offered to the general reading public. Then we start going into the 1940s. Buckle your seatbelts. Why have I now got the Star Spangled Man with a plan in my head? Carrying on. So in 1941, transsexuality was first used in reference to homosexuality and bisexuality. In 1944, the first prominent American to reveal his homosexuality was the poet Robert Duncan. This occurred when in 1944, using his own name in the anarchist magazine Politics, he wrote that homosexuals were an oppressed minority. In 1945, the Holocaust ends and it's estimated that about 3,000 to about 9,000 homosexuals died, 
in Nazi concentration and death camps. While it is also estimated that between 2,000 and 6,000 homosexual survivors in Nazi concentration and death camps were required to serve out to the full term of their sentences under paragraph 175 in prison. Basically stating that because they're gay, they're gonna end up being in prison anyway. So despite their liberation, they're still imprisoned. Ouch. However, within the same year, the first gay bar in post-World War II Berlin opened in the summer of 1945, and the first drag ball took place in the American sector of West Berlin in that same fall. Uh, four honorably discharged gay veterans formed the Veterans Benevolent Association, the first LGBT veterans group, and also a gay bar called Yanagi, opened in Japan. Then in 1946, the COC, Dutch acronym for the Center of Culture and Recreation, one of the earliest homophile organizations, is founded in the Netherlands. It's the oldest surviving LGBT organization, which is nice. Also within the same year, plastic surgeon Harold Gillies carries out sex reassignment surgery on Michael Dillon in Britain. So, big on him, I guess. In 1947 to 1948, vice versa, the first American lesbian publication is written and self-published by Lisa Ben, real name Edith Ide, in Los Angeles. In the 1950s, Rina Natan becomes the first transsexual woman in Israel, undergoing sex reassignment surgery out of her own will. In 1950, the Organization for Sexual Equality, now named the Swedish Federation of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual and Transgender Rights, the RFSL, is formed in Sweden. On the 11th of November of 1950, the Matachine Society, the first sustained American homosexual group, is founded in LA. Alongside that, within the same year, 190 individuals in the US are dismissed from government employment for their sexual orientation, commencing the Lavender Scare. Now, the Lavender Scare was a moral panic during the mid 20th century about homosexual people in the US government and their mass dismissal for government service. This contributed to a parallel of the anti-communist campaign known as McCarthyism and the Second Red Scare. Gay men and lesbians were said to be national security risks and, and communist sympathizers, which led to the call to remove them from state employment. It was thought that gay people were more susceptible to being manipulated, which could pose a threat to the country. In short, what the fuck? In 1952, Spring Fire, the first lesbian paperback novel, and the beginning of a lesbian pulp fiction genre was published in 1952 and sold 1.5 million copies. It was written by lesbian Mary Jane Meeker under the false alias Vim Packer. In 1952, Christine Jorgensen becomes the first widely publicized person to have undergone sex reassignment surgery. In this case, M to F created a worldwide sensation. And within the same year, in Japan, the male homosexual magazine Adonis is launched with the writer Yukio Mishima as a contributor. Now remember an autobiography I talked about earlier about Diana, a strange autobiography? Well in 1953 the Diana Foundation was founded on 19th of March in Houston, Texas by a small group of friends. The Diana Foundation is a non-profit organization and is recognized as the oldest continuously active gay organization in the United States and hosts two annual fundraising events including its Diana Awards. On a sad note, however, in 1954, on the 7th of June, mathematical and computing genius Alan Turing committed by cyanide poisoning 18 months after being given a choice between two years in prison or libido-reducing hormone treatment for a year as a punishment for homosexuality. A succession of well-known men, including Lord Montague, 
Michael Pitt Rivers and Peter Wildblood were convicted of homosexual offences as British police pursued a McCarthy-like purge on society homosexuals. Within the same year, Arcadi, the first homosexual group in France, is formed. In 1955, the Daughters of Belitis, or the DOB, was founded in San Francisco by four lesbian couples, including Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, and was the first national lesbian political and social organization in the United States. In 1956, The Ladder, the first nationally distributed lesbian publication in the United States, began. In 1958, the first gay leather bar in the United States, The Gold Coast, opened in Chicago in 1958 founded by Dom Orojudos and Chuck Renslow. And in 1959, ITV, at the time, the UK's only national commercial broadcaster, broadcast the first UK TV gay drama, South, starring Peter Weingard. Alongside this in the same year, the first homosexual uprising in the USA occurs at Cooper's Donuts in LA. Rioters were arrested by LAPD though. Going into the 60s now, Fannie Mae Clackham and Grace Garner U.S. Air Force reservists in the late 40s and early 50s became the first people to successfully challenge their discharges from the U.S. military for being gay. Although the ruling turned out to be the fact that there wasn't enough evidence to show that the women were lesbians. In 1961, Hungary decriminalizes sodomy, victim is the first English language to use the first homosexual, and premieres in the UK on 31st August 1961. Also within the same year, the Vatican declares that anyone who is affected by the perverse inclination towards homosexuality should not be allowed to take religious vows or be ordained within the Roman Catholic Church. Basically exclusivist homophobes. Also within 1961, The Rejected, the first documentary on homosexuality broadcast on American television, broadcast on KQED-TV in San Francisco on the 11th of September 1961. In 1962, Illinois becomes the first US state to remove sodomy laws from its criminal code through the passage of the American Law Institute's Modern Penal Code. While the adopted code does not penalize private sexual relations, it criminalizes acts of open lewdness. Which is a very vague term, America, what the fuck? Czechoslovakia decriminalizes sodomy. The Tavern Guild, the first gay business association in the US, was created by gay bar owners in 1962 as a response to continued police harassment and closing of gay bars, including the Tay Bushin raid, and continued until 1995. The Tay Bushin raid was a police raid on San Francisco, California's Tay Bush Inn on September 14, 1961, where 103 LGBT patrons, mostly men, were arrested. It's considered a pivotal event in the history of LGBT rights in San Fran. In 1964, Canada sees its first gay positive organization, ASK, and the first gay magazines, ASK Newsletter and Gay. Gay was first periodically used to the term gay in the title and expanded quickly, including outstripping the distribution of American publication under the name Gay International. This was quickly followed by the magazine too. In March 1964, Ted North founds the Imperial Court of Canada, a monarchist society compromised primarily of drag personalities and becomes a driving force in effort to achieve equality in Canada. The Courts of Canada now have over 14 chapters across the country and is the oldest continuously running LGBT organisation in Canada. Also within 1964, the first photograph of lesbians on the cover of lesbian magazine, The Ladder, was done in September, showing two women from the back on the beach looking out to the sea. In June 1964, Paul Welch's Life article entitled Homosexuality in America was the first time a national publication reported on gay issues. 
Also created in 1964 was the Council on Religion and Homosexual, the first group in the US to use the word homosexual in its name. In 1965, the Council on Religion and Homosexual held an event where local politicians could be questioned about issues concerning gay and lesbian people, including police intimidation. This event marking the first known instance of the gay vote being sought for. Also over in 1965, Everett George Clipper, the last person imprisoned in Canada for homosexuality, is arrested for private consensual sex with men. After being assessed incurably homosexual, he is sentenced to an indefinite preventive detention as a dangerous sexual offender. This being considered by many Canadians to be extremely homophobic and promoted sympathetic articles in Maclean's and the Toronto Star, eventually leading to increased calls for legal reform in Canada, which passed in 1969. As you can see, a lot of shit happened in the 60s. Now, unfortunately, due to time, we may have to cut this episode short, so this may be a two-parter. The next part will probably be up somewhere within this week. But to all of you who have listened for the past 32 minutes, I thank you, and I hope to see you again soon. Thank you ever so much for listening. Cheers. Bye.